coming. Uh, you're here for Coco Fusco's uh, exciting talk today. Uh, I'm just going to give a few introductory words and then uh, Juno will uh, handle Coco's introduction. Uh, I'm Ian Condry. Uh, welcome to the CMS Writing Colloquium Series. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, we have this event every uh, Thursday, 5 to 7. Uh, this is often the room it's in, but it's in often in other rooms as well. Uh, it's uh, one of the things I want to announce uh, before we get started. Um, I'm Ian Condry, I suppose I should say that, uh, and I teach here at Prepared Media Studies. Uh, there's been some changes in the uh, schedule for the colloquium for the next couple weeks, so I just wanted to uh, make note of that. Uh, next week, we're going to have Todd Harper, uh, who will be talking about uh, video games. Um, Fight Like Gentlemen, the Culture of Fighting Games. Uh, that will be the, spe the speaker next week uh, on Halloween, I believe it is. Uh, <laughs> Five to seven, um, and that'll be a different building, uh, building for room 231. So uh, if you have any interest in fighting games, please come see that. Uh, we also have another, we're sort of switching people around. Sonia Livingstone will be speaking the week after that uh, called, uh, on a talk called The Class, colon, Living and Learning in the Digital Age. Uh, so those should both be uh, very exciting talks, and I encourage you to see those. Um, I also want to announce that we have a very exciting uh, talk coming up next Tuesday as well. This coming Tuesday, October 29th, uh, our MLK visiting professor, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, a writer you may see in the New York Times and other places. Uh, he's here visiting in CMS writing uh, for the year at least. And he will be uh, moderating a conversation with Hendrik Hertzberg. Uh, senior editor and staff writer uh, for The New Yorker. Uh, so that promises to be a very exciting uh, talk as well, and I encourage you to check that out. That's next Tuesday, uh, 7 to 8.30 p.m., and that will be in the Stata Center, uh, the, big, the big room there, 32-123 is the big auditorium there. And the Stata Center, again, that's Tuesday, October 29th, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Hendrik Hertzberg. Uh, <coughs> Uh, there's a lot to say about Coco Fusco, but I'll leave that uh, to my colleague uh, and friend, Juno Diaz, uh, famed novelist, uh, writer, uh, most recently of This Is How You Lose Her. Please join me in welcoming Juno. <laughs> Thank you. Very kind. It's so nice to see everyone here, friends and colleagues and collaborators. Uh, very swiftly, the best part about an introduction is to, you know, get it done fast. Yeah, we'll welcome you to this evening's conversation, this evening's colloquium with Coco Fusco, um, one of our most important and I would argue troubling interdisciplinary artists, critics, and of course wears many other hats as well, journalist, curator. Yeah, those of you who are not familiar with Coco's work and her uh, biography, this has been a banner year for Coco, won a number of awards from a Guggenheim to a U.S. Artist Fellow, etc. Her work, and I'm just going to read from this because it's better to get titles correct. Yeah. Um, her published work, um, some of you may know, A Field Guide to Female Interrogators. If you haven't read that, that's one of the craziest things I've ever read. Um, <laughs> only Skin Deep, Changing Visions of the American Self. The Body That Were Not Ours and Other Writings, Corpus Delecti, Performance Art in the Americas, and of course her first text, the seminal English is Broken Here. Yeah. Uh, Coco's writings as well as her performances, as well as her interventions in the arts and across disciplines as wide as urban studies, as diasporic studies, and of course questions of 
race and culture put her at the heart of many conversations and one of the reasons why we're so excited to have her here. Um, please help me welcome Coco Pusto. Thank you. Thank you very much to Juno for a very generous introduction from a very good friend and a very esteemed colleague. And uh, thanks to everybody in Comparative Media Studies who's made my visit possible. It's very, it's really nice to be here. It's a little scary because I'm an artist talking in to me like the world of science and I'm trying to sort of uh, dabble a little bit in um, acquiring knowledge of certain areas of science for a performance that I'm working on, but I'm going to try and share what I'm doing with you. Um, you know, I, I just want to start out by saying that the safe way to do a talk for me is to talk about work I've already done, and I am not doing that today. I'm doing the more risky um, kind of talk where I'm sharing with you work that is in progress, a script that I am in the process of developing. Um, and so what I'm, uh, and some of uh, the research for this actually comes out of courses that I taught in the last few years on Afrofuturism. And I uh, began to develop these kind of, um, uh, I, what, what, kind, what would I call them? They're not really art history courses. They're more like visual culture courses on um, Afrofuturism in response to student interest. And I have to say, I learned a tremendous amount about Afrofuturism from my students who um, connect with the ideas of Afrofuturism through popular culture and who taught me a lot about, I was thinking about Sun Ra and about weird science fiction films from the 60s and 70s and they start talking to me about Janelle Monet and about robotic dances and different uh, uh, rap videos and we start, we, that, that conversation really um, enriched me a lot and, uh, and so I'm, I you know, always want to recognize that when I begin to talk about these ideas. Okay, that's my kid, but I'm talking to you about... Um so a lot of the time, my, the, some of the challenges that I face coming at these kinds of social issues as an artist is how not to bore the audience. It's not so much about how to get it right or how to be the most innovative, but how to actually um, bring people into a conversation. Because when they come to an art experience or performance experience, especially these days when performance has become a very trendy art form and people think that they're all going to become superstars just by going to see a performance, because that's what happened to many of the viewers of Marina Abramovic when she was at MoMA for three months, to try to actually put serious content into an artwork is something of a challenge. And the um, topics that I'm trying to deal with right now have to do with how to recognize uh, racial, racialization or racist uh, pol political structures and practices in the present, in a so po supposedly post-racial present, how to understand them in relationship to economic violence, which seems to me to be the kind of violence that most people in the world experience, um, much more so than warfare that gets more of the, the uh, airtime um, on the radio and, and uh, in the media sphere, and also that describes the sort of the, the most um, obvious uh, uh, form of polarization um, in the United States. Um, 
I, I mean, th- I'm not the only one who's talking about this. There's somebody who I think just got a Nobel Prize who said, you know, this is the most pressing issue for this country is um, economic polarization, which I understand to be a form of economic violence. So it's for me, I'm thinking about it from the how can I talk about this, okay? That's where I start. And so, you know, what, am I, what I'm talking about is, you know, when I get people talking about how wonderful life is for everybody because you can have everything you want or because you can go online and the internet has everything, then I have to throw these kinds of statistics up and say, you know, let's talk about mass incarceration. Let's talk about the unbelievable immiseration of people of color in the last few years as a result of the um, the crash of 2008, which we now have, a, you know, a, a more extreme gap um, and polarization of wealth than we've had since uh, the Depression. Um, and, and then also this dilemma that, you know, things are actually worse than most people believe, which is what the um, Mother Jones uh, 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 graphs are about, that we think that we have, that there's more rate, uh, economic equality in this country than there actually is. Okay, so, you know, a lot of times when I begin talking about this with my students, they, oh my God, why is my um, PowerPoint being cut off? Do we have somebody who could help me with that? Because now, like, the whole left side of that thing is getting cut off all the time. But um, I'm just going to go on so we don't waste time, and I'll fill in. But it's fair trade, obviously, okay? It's a, and when I start talking about this stuff with my students, I have to deal with, you know, what are the mass media representations of black success? Is that, oh, you know, this is what the black family looks like, right? Will Smith and, uh, and his lovely family. Or, uh, you know, everybody, every black person can become a millionaire because look at Jay or, you know, all forms of kind of global capital or all these kinds of fair trade exchanges. This is the sort of um, the common sense understanding that many of my students come into the classroom with. And so then to begin to try to talk to them about what's, how is this a sense, a kind of tactical move within the media that masks a very different kind of economic and political reality, that's uh, where I start to bring in sci-fi to be able to um, launch that sort of conversation. So what I'm, the kind of conversation that I'm trying to develop now in this performance is a kind of interspecies comparison to try to understand economic violence as animal behavior and to look at humans as, look at uh, kind of the, the greed and the, um, the striving, this kind of obsessive striving to accumulate wealth that characterizes people on Wall Street in particular, but um, many people in the developed world in general, as um, kind of a, a form of animal aggression. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, as soon as you bring sort of the other primates into the conversation, things start to get a little bit uncomfortable for some people and uh, a little crazy for me, which is what I like. And uh, so this is why I began to look at what some primatologists were working on, which right now it seems like they're very interested in studying cooperation among other primates, um, in part because of the what's perceived in the social sciences as the, dis- the decline of empathy and um, the sort of uh, deterioration of um, cooperative social systems in human societies, right? So we're trying to look at, well, what do the other uh, uh, primates, high-level primates do uh, to cooperate and why don't we do it? And so this is um, 
one of uh, Robert Sapolsky's great uh, examples of a baboons to society that he was studying when he was younger, um, where the alpha males, they're apparently a very rigid, hierarchic um, primate social formation, and they are dominated by these alpha males, but he had one group where all the alpha males died because they went to a garbage heap to eat food that was um, uh, from, from a tourist area, and the food was infected by tuberculosis. So suddenly, this society that had been dominated by alpha males lost all the alpha males and became more um, matriarchal Um, and also the non-dominant males were the only males left and it became a much more kind of copacetic, cooperative, friendly social structure and this this result of a traumatic event was actually passed down generationally in this group of baboons. That was the interesting um, uh, kind of uh, observation that Sapolsky was able to make that suddenly it wasn't just that the baboons who survived the trauma became more cooperative and kind of friendly with each other and more kind of um, horizontal in the way that they organize themselves socially but uh, they, they, uh, they actually pass that on to others and when baboons from other social uh, groups tried to join they had to be sort of beaten into submission to understand that the mode of, um, of organizing in that group was to be cooperative and horizontal in their social formation so he's like well wouldn't it be nice what would happen if uh, that happened to us So, um, you know, I'm working with Planet of the Apes as my um, sci-fi, right? So I have to go back to the kind of animal psychology that was in circulation at the time that the films were made. And I'm talking about the original Planet of the Apes film. So we're talking about 68 to 73. And at that time, you know, the the kind of uh, founder of ethology, Conrad Lorenz's book on aggression was the sort of the dominant text that was describing aggression across different um, animal groups. But he also then began to offer his opinions on human beings. Now, some of you may already know this. This guy is won a Nobel Prize, is very famous, wrote a lot of important books, and also was a card-carrying member of the National Socialist Party in the Second World War. So, you know, there are some who hate him only for that. When Sapolsky talks about him in his lectures at Stanford, he's always going, you know, Nazi scum, and then he'll go on to what Laurent said. But what I find, I mean, and it's an important part of who he was, but um, nonetheless, I find it really interesting that the points that he makes about um, human aggression and the, the destructiveness of, of the specific forms of human aggression in seventy three in uh, which he in this book that he wrote in seventy three are exactly the same critiques that were made in Planet of the Apes of human beings. Okay, I mean Planet of the Apes is fun and all that, but it is the original films were very virulent social critiques of human folly in the form of violence. Right? It was about human beings had destroyed their civilization because of um, the use of atomic bombs. Human beings were the only primates that killed each other, which was um, a belief held in the 1960s when the films uh, when the films were made and when the original book was written that humans were the only primates who killed each other and since then primatologists have changed their position on that because they found that chimps are also genocidal and orangutans and all these other uh, primates also kill each other um, but anyway they, uh, it, it's very interesting to me that this was where science was and that's what the films were also saying at the time 
Okay. So, um, you know, the kind of comparison that I'm making, I didn't invent this. This is kind of popular these days. And I read this really fascinating book that came out recently when I began my research called Zubiquity that was doctors and veterinarians talking to each other, right? Um, and one of the things that I got from reading that was looking at, you know, what, do, what happens to immiserated human beings in our society and what, it's very similar to what happens physiologically to animals in captivity. Um, so these are the kinds of comparison that, uh, comparisons that I can kind of pull out of scientific research to then draw into a, fiction, a fictional context as I uh, build a performance script. Okay. So, and the other thing that I have to kind of think about, because being a talking ape in the context of, um, you know, presenting this work in a, in a context like Studio Museum in Harlem, which is where it's going to premiere, there's a very uh, uh, kind of nasty history of compare of being obsessed with comparing blacks and apes in this uh, society. So I have to contend with that and try to work with that as I create my um, performance imagery and not uh, pretend that I'm avoiding it because I'm actually um, going right into the belly of the beast in uh, creating uh, a talking ape character. But um, at the same time, I have to look in a broader sense at why there is this uh, post-war history of, of fascination in American pop culture with apes, right? Um, uh, so, you know, some of the sort of darker history of this, the, the underside of this, is the um, 19th century caricatures that spill into the 20th century um, that associate certain ethnic groups, usually the Irish and um, African Americans, with uh, being more, quote-unquote, ape-like, right? And I'm just putting up very quickly some examples uh, here. And uh, this is the kind of uh, racial imagery that I uh, kind of used to work on when I was working on the Only Skin Deep uh, project. And then we move into more kind of 20th century um, kind of pop culture, um, uh, <coughs> the cuteness factor comes in, pop cultural treatment of, of, um, of, of apes, particularly of chimps. And there was a period in the 50s when there, you know, TV was full of uh, characters like Kokomo and dancing chimps and chimps as clowns. And then you get the chimp as the astronaut and the, the chimp who can talk and Coco the gorilla. And then um, by the late 60s and early 70s, as we get into this period in American history where there's a lot of um, kind of social critiques of our um, uh, destructive tendencies um, and also uh, you know, a Supreme Court case about cruel and unusual punishment, you get the beginning of this conversation about isn't what we're doing to all these primates really wrong, like all the um, you know, radiating them and shooting them up with all sorts of drugs for our benefit and so on and so forth. And that conversation has uh, continued to the point that, which I'll uh, uh, show you some images of later, where now uh, last year there was this Cambridge Declaration that animals have consciousness so we can't um, uh, experiment on them in the same way anymore because they feel pain. Science, the scientific community has decided they're not only sentient but they feel pain. Okay, so, um, but I'm also, there, there's, underneath that kind of imagery is this tension I, I perceive anyway when I look at the images. I'm not, now I'm not talking about looking at the scientific research, but look at the imagery that's used to illustrate the research. There's always this kind of thing of they're kind of too much like us for comfort, particularly when I see pictures like this. Okay, um, so you know, and I'm trying to work with that because now I'm trying to look like them. 
right? Uh, so that's me with uh, doing my test of my uh, the prosthetics um, to make the the more uh, simian face. It's um, fun. But it's also extremely uncomfortable to wear all of that stuff. So I've been doing tests um, to see what the character looks like, but also to see what I can do with my face. Because part of the way to kind of create the um, the anxiety around the hybrid of the, the the human who's not quite human is to humanize that simian face. And to do that, to move the prosthetic is actually not that um, easy. And I noticed from watching the Planet of the Apes films over and over again that they don't move much. They don't move their faces much, and they don't move their mouths when they speak. So now, just if I'm, you know, pull back from looking at kind of cultural studies and just talk about the pragmatics of performing, I am now, you know, fi- trying to figure out how to physically humanize that face to create the dramatic tension um, and uh, without being able to breathe through my nose. Right, uh, because the prosthetic actually covers your nose. Um, my nose is somewhere between where that nose is and where um, the ape mouth is. So it's um, it's a it's a it's a challenge, but I'm trying to um, work through that right now. So anyway, so, so what am I what am I trying to put in this script? Right, is kind of to look at. Uh, neoliberalism as a philosophy, as an individualist philosophy. And so um, Dr. Zira is um, interpreting this, uh, this philosophy in relationship to you know, what animal psychologists look at in animals, the drive for territory and status, um, which is mostly you know, the things that dominate uh, the primatology resor- uh, research. So um, you know, she looks at things like this, um, and this billionaires against social security story. Ooh, this is too small on the screen to be able to read, but I can tell you what it's about. Um, a group of billionaires financing uh, the organizing of college student campaigns against social security by um, delivering to uh, uh, these students uh, misinformation to the effect that um, their student loans, are, their, their tuition is increasing and their student loan interest rates are increasing because uh, they're bearing the brunt of paying for social security for the elderly. So they're tr- so these um, right-wing uh, billionaires are trying to mobilize college students against social security. That kind of symbolic violence, uh, you know, there's like lo- plenty of uh, primatologists out there who would talk about that as the distinctly human uh, form of, of aggression that uh, other primates uh, don't engage in, even though, uh, you know, chimps and gorillas do lie, um, and they're capable of dissimulation, but not to not to this degree of complexity. Okay. Um, another is uh, this: uh, the Kids for Cash scandal. Um, I don't know if you guys heard about this. This started a few years ago when these judges were taking bribes in the state of Pennsylvania and sending all these adolescents to juvenile detention centers when they didn't deserve to be. And we're talking about thousands of kids who were basically sold to private prisons by these judges. I mean, that kind of monetarization of uh, social welfare practice um, is, uh, you know, distinctly neoliberal, but also that kind of uh, symbolic violence is distinctly human, right? Um, and then the, the example of the drone strikes is one that people like Sapolsky talk about all the time. If you want to understand what human aggression is, you have to think about guys in a room 
uh, you know, uh, uh, t telematically dropping bombs on other people. That's a form of violence that is enhanced by technology that no other primate um, could invent or be capable of or engage in or suffer the repercussions of it. But because he does, Sapolsky does talk about the post-traumatic stress effects of engaging in that activity over time. Um, so, you know, so I try to take some of this information from science and put it into a speculative fiction scenario, right? So these are the kinds of scenarios that I'm working on as, you know, Dr. Zira is um, thinking about uh, wealth accumulation as hoarding or uh, thinking about um, the, uh, the ways that um, we, we uh, curb social mobility um, in relationship to how primate societies enforce social hierarchies, or the way that um, we uh, engage in, as a society, immigration control, segregation, redlining, as manifestations of territorialism, which is characteristic of advanced mammals, right? They protect their territory in order to guard their resources. Well, so do we. Um, now, I'm not saying I agree with those kinds of political activities, but it's interesting for me to kind of put those kinds of activities through the language of uh, studying other animals to try to understand uh, uh, to understand uh, what we're doing in a different way. And then um, the sort of the political demonization of all these more kind of altruistic, cooperative uh, political formations like universal health care or public education um, to, uh, you know, in terms of if we talk about the decline of empathy, can we tr understand this kind of neoliberal obsession with privatization and the elimination of collective uh, resources um, as, uh, as symptomatic of that uh, erosion of our own uh, altruistic tendencies? Okay, so... For, I go back when I'm kind of trying to uh, work through this stuff, I go back in time, but also when I'm teaching this kind of material, I go back in time. And the first sci-fi story that I found that begins to play with this apes and humans um, blurring the line is this very interesting short story called Jerry is a Man. Um, and in that uh, scenario, it's sort of like a metropolis, like a Fritz Lang's metropolis scenario in the story where you have these like mad legions of these uh, chimp workers who have been genetically modified so that they can perform, uh, you know, sort of factory labor, basic factory labor, but um, they don't challenge the status quo. But they do develop certain kind of tics and habits that uh, humans do, like they like to smoke cigarettes, right? So Jerry is one of these chimps, and one of the um, investors, I guess, in the factory shows up one day and happens to be a particularly soft-hearted, rich person, and Jerry comes and asks for a cigarette, and this person is really sort of saddened by Jerry's condition, and wants to um, adopt Jerry in a way and kind of lift him out of this uh, mass of exploited chimp workers and, um, and is claiming that, you know, if Jerry can perform this work and if Jerry wants a cigarette, that Jerry too is human. And, uh, and the, the story, the kind of high point of the story is a court case where, um, you know, everybody has to decide, the judge has to decide whether Jerry is or is not a man. Um, and when Jerry is put on the stand, he's been very carefully prepared by his trainers to answer the questions properly so that the judge will think he's a man. And what really um, kind of is the uh, 
la tapa al pomo, right? What is it? The straw that broke that breaks the camel's back is uh, when uh, Jerry begins to sing a spiritual, a black spiritual, and uh, and that's the end of it. And the judge gavel, boom, Jerry is a man. And so it's you know the sort of the racial dimension of the story doesn't come out so clearly until that moment. But that that this, this is a whole allegory about the exploitation of black labor uh, during the early part of the 20th century. Interestingly, when uh, there was a TV movie made of the story in 2007, there are no more chimps, there are no more apes, there are all these kind of Blade Runner-esque clones. So that whole kind of interspecies as a allegory for interracial dynamic um, is eliminated. But the original, in the original story, it's uh, definitely there. So in uh, the classes that I've taught on uh, Afrofuturism, we look at these kinds of futuristic scenarios and how they're used to explore uh, social issues affecting uh, different black populations. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen this sci-fi short that was made a few years ago by a Kenyan filmmaker named Awanuri Kahiu, but it's a, a very interesting, it was the first sub-Saharan sci-fi movie made by a black director. and. Um, it's a short, and it's basically about drought in East Africa. Um, but the story is that you know the survivors of this endless drought are living underground, and uh, they have, in order to extract enough liquid to be able to drink something, they have to do exercise, like in a gym, and then collect all their sweat, and then the sweat is put through a machine and purified, and then it's rationed out to all the the members of this group. But um, but anyway, it's a very you know it's a it's a it's a beautiful little film, but it is a I, I try to talk about it in relation relationship to, you know, this is social commentary about what's global warming, um, but it is uh, told in a, a very different way. And then, you know, there are all these kind of classic uh, sci-fi films that, that bring up this kind of interspecies, interracial um, um, conflation uh, in the 60s and early, in the late 60s, early 70s at the high point of kind of racial strife after in the civil rights movement. And so I hear it's the famous kind of interracial kiss in Planet of the Apes, and um, you know the uh, scene from Omega Man where the uh, the black uh, uh, scientist is like getting ready to perform kind of drug testing on on the white guy, and this is a kind of re- role reversal from things like the Tuskegee experiment. But there are all these allusions to the use of black people for scientific experimentation against their will. Um, so the kinds of uh, thematic categories that I try to work through when I'm, um, uh, you know, talking to students about Afrofuturism is about comparing and contrasting, um, you know, the scenarios of sci-fi, the post-human scenarios of sci-fi of films like Blade Runner, with the subhuman condition of Afro- African Americans in history, and to get them to start to start to understand how to read uh, the allegories in the films and fictive texts. Um, but also because in a lot of the um, early kind of theoretical writings about Afrofuturism from the 90s, some of the first proponents, and I remember a race and digital space uh, uh, conference here at MIT many years ago where we were talking about this, people like Greg Tate were saying, you know, we understand all those stories about alien abduction because we were the people who really went through this, right? Um, 
So, uh, you know, but I try to, to look at the visuals and to start uh, doing kind of comparative analysis of the visuals because if you look at sort of 19th century depictions of uh, the, the original abduction, um, it's always moving downward, right? Going down, going down into the ship, going down this hole that sort of sucks you down in. And then alien abduction is a, another hole, but you're going up and up and up. And that I try to compare and contrast these modes of visualization of this experience of disappearance, right? Um, and then also sort of the subaltern labor and the android. Um, and uh, that, you know, then uh, students have lots and lots of ex- uh, examples of android laborers. But I thought, okay, let's go back to the beginning of these kinds of uh, representations with um, films like Metropolis. And then in terms of its relationship to the apes uh, uh, series, um, when you get to, I guess Conquest is the third um, or the fourth film, uh, when you get to uh, this uh, film, uh, we're back on Earth during the time when humans are still in charge, um, and uh, the, the uh, apes have gone from being in the wild to becoming pets to becoming servants and slaves, and now they're about to revolt against their uh, condition of, um, of servitude and abjection. So, um, you know, even people who aren't as old as me know about Planet of the Apes. That's something that I found out by teaching the classes. It seems to be this kind of cultural trope that doesn't want to go away because every year there's a new sequel or a new remake or another manifestation. But, I mean, I think that one of the reasons why it keeps returning is because it's incredibly potent cultural myth, but also because it speaks to a lot of broader cultural anxieties that we still live with. And I think one of the ways to understand how um, pertinent that is, is to see how uh, right-wing elements on the internet uh, use Planet of the Apes to talk about the Obamas. Um, And this has been, uh, you know, this stuff is all over the net, um, and it has been since uh, the 2008 uh, campaign. Um, So, the, uh, the key themes in the films that are especially useful to me, but I think are, are good for also for understanding the works, is this moral critique of um, human tendencies that lead to the destruction of civilization, um, the conflict between scientific inquiry and the need for social sequ- uh, control, and then as a maker, as an artist, you know, I'm like, aesthetically, what are the, how do they do this? How do they make a difficult sto- a story that should be difficult to digest palatable and actually entertaining and seductive is through inversion, right? Um, through inversion and allegory. So those are their key strategies, and that's what I want to take uh, from them. Okay? Um, but And I also, you know, have to... I mean, I don't have to do this in the performance, but when I'm teaching this material, I have to contextualize uh, the films uh, historically that, you know, they really are understood now. I don't know if they were all understood at the time um, as being about uh, racial conflicts of the period, but they're certainly understood that way now if you look at the kind of film studies literature on the films. Oh, she agrees. See? so, and there are lots of scenes in the Apes films where you can tell that they're um, talking about the Watts Rebellion or about a, a very famous, some other famous confer- confrontation uh, of the of the period. So, uh, in, and actually, the um, the f- film where. Uh, 
Caesar leads the revolt of the ape slaves against the humans was shot at UC Irvine, which ironically is the, the campus of UC that was built so as to prevent students from organizing riots, right? And so they choose this as the backdrop for the movie where the apes uh, revolt. Um, so in that, you know, you have these kind of scenes of like burning cars and, you know, throwing policemen over the edges of buildings that sort of look like a lot of the scenes of the um, race uh, riots of the 1960s. And then um, in the last one, the last one of the original uh, five, um, you have the chimps have become sort of the intellectuals and the pacifists of, of Ape City, and they are defending the now subjugated humans against uh, mistreat, mistreatment by the orangutans and gorillas. So they're marching for peace and freedom and, you know, protect the humans. Keep them in a cage, but protect the humans. So you said the lots of scenes from the news get uh, recast um, in these ways in the films. Okay, and the films are also, now we understand them to reflect sort of changes in primatology of the 60s and 70s when you move from, uh, uh, move to a, a con concent concentrating on primates as social beings, as cultural, culturally literate beings, and as um, political subjects. And, uh, and I think that that shift really freaked a lot of people out because it then, um, blurs the line between what had been understood as the, the dividing line between humans and other primates. They not only have tools, but they have culture, they have language, and they're political. So this um, chimpanzee politics, which was written in the um, uh, early 70s, which is a really funny um, and interesting book, has this endorsement by all these Republicans <laughs> like uh, uh, who were uh, Republican politicians who were very interested in um, the uh, in comparing their own uh, uh, machinations in, in Congress to uh, the apes. Um, and this is part of a, a, the long story of the end of human exceptionalism. And I think that is where the Planet of the Apes films come in as popular cultural representations of anxiety, broadly based social anxiety about what it means to lose your exceptional status in the world. The talking apes are what everybody's scared of. It's what we wanted to produce in the lab, right? And that's why we've subjected so many poor chimps and gorillas and others to endless um, kind of extraction from their natural environments and um, you know, being brought up in unnatural environments to be able to see if we could get them to be like us. But actually, when you show them being like humans in the films, people love it, but it, they love it in a way that it, it, it becomes a kind of um, dream space representation of our greatest fear. Um, so, uh, going back to what I was saying about aesthetic strategies from the apes films that I'm trying to use, um, that, you know, the ape city is a distorted mirror, kind of in, in, in the way that a lot of kind of utopian uh, propositions of the 16th and 17th century were these, showing you these fictional societies that were actually showed you everything that was wrong with, uh, with our, the society of the time or what you wanted things to be at that time. And in the same way, ape city is a, another kind of of uh, distorted mirror where all the things that are supposedly bad about humans, all the aggressive aspects are put under control through the imposition of an extremely uh, rigid social hierarchy, uh, denying apes access to certain territories so that they can't know 
things because the territories have knowledge of prior human civilizations, strict adherence to religion, so you can't question. So the chimps, intellectuals like my character Zira, get in trouble for asking too many questions and、uh, segregating and subjugating humans. The others are all segregated and subjugated. So、uh, that's the the reflection, the distorted reflection of who we are.、Um, and then in that context, the chimp, the two chimps, the two chimp char- main characters,、uh, Cornelius and Zira, are like the intellectuals who、um, dramatize kind of what 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 a liberal position in American society would have been at that time, right? So they they love Taylor. They have a, they're kind kind to him. They help him escape.、Um, they they don't want him to be killed. They're against the kinds of、um, Surgeries that are performed on his colleagues that leave them、um, incapable of speech or thought,、um, and、uh, Cornelius in particular is really interested in digging up the forbidden history of a human's prior、um, control of of the planet because he's the one who goes into the、um, excavation site and digs up the talking human doll or human-like doll that then.、Um, The orangutans, who are in charge of governing the city, decide they have to destroy so that the apes can have no knowledge of their connection with humans.、Um, so, as you, you guys probably know, the films are well. The original film, the first film, is based on a novel that was written in or published in 1963, and the story is a little bit different in the novel. And I think that shift is also really interesting because it has to do with t-、uh, differing temporalities, but also about moving what was originally a French. Science fiction story into an American context, into an American social context. So, in the original novel, the main human character's name is Ulysses. A connection with the Greek Ulysses. He visits another planet. He doesn't go. He's not. He's, he doesn't land on Earth.、Um, the apes speak a different language, which、um, in, in a Hollywood film it would have been impossible to subtitle a film like Planet of the Apes. So they just had to have everybody speak English.、Um, but Ape City is also very different in the book. On the one hand, it's much more technological. So this kind of fear of the destructive aspect of technology is not in. The novel that is something that comes in. I think think as a uh, uh, a response to、um, the bombings in Vietnam that they have to kind of demonize all technology in the movies, and that doesn't happen in the novel.、Uh, and so you have chimps on planes and in spaceships in the book, but they're also swinging from trees. So that these kind of two realities are conflated in the novel, whereas、uh, none of the apes in the、um, Planet of the Apes films are. They all walk on. Two、uh, feet, and they are all erect, and they don't. Although they sort of bend over slightly, but they're、uh, erect, and but they don't、uh, swing from trees. And as a matter of fact, Cornelius's、uh, son is、uh, wounded from because he falls from a tree. So he's not behaving like a chimp、um, in the in the chimp uh, uh, movie. And、um, in the book, there are no vestiges of mutant humans the way that there are in the films.、Uh, those mutant humans who pull their faces off, and then you see these really scary masks who, who live underground and worship a bomb and set it off in the fourth film. That's a totally an a invention of the American film system that has absolutely nothing to do with the book. And whereas. The chimp who has to be hidden in order to be saved to begin the transfer of power from apes 
from humans to apes in the movies. That's it's a chimp who has to be saved and hidden. The son of uh, Zira and Cornelius. The child who has to be hidden in the book is the child that Ulysses has with Nova. It's a human child who's now going to be the first talking human of this uh, new planet. So, um, and here's just you know how the inversions work. So in the original movie, you've got the astronauts arrive and then they're in captivity and sort of treated like zoo animals and then by the time you get to the third film escape from the planet of the apes you've got uh, the uh, the chimps get into that ship and they fly back to earth back in time and then they're subject to they become specimens and they're subject to scrutiny and eventually after they're sort of feted and treated like stars um, they become the object of of, of absolute terror um, by the um, governing humans who have to destroy them um, and then, uh, oh, here are the, uh, the uh, radiation-crazed mutant humans. I love these guys because um, they just spend all their time in church praying to the bomb underground. Um, and, uh, and then you get, uh, this is the revolt, the, uh, the ape revolt. And the final chapter, which really, I mean, I remember seeing pictures of the L.A. riots in 1991 that don't look very different from this. Uh, and so that's what the, the kind of tension that I like to explore when I'm uh, looking at these uh, films in my uh, research and then try to allow that to um, inform uh, the, the uh, script that I'm now working on. But I'm not so much talking about uh, rioting anymore, but more about uh, economic violence. So that's the project that I'm working on now. I hope we're okay on time. And I'm uh, happy to answer any questions that you might have about uh, this or anything else. No, it's okay. I mean, if you want to come up, that's fine. No, just, just officially say, say <laughs> get to it, gang. All right, well, let me, I'll, help out I'm gonna, I'll help moderate a little bit, and, but it's, it's all about... Uh, uh, but let me, I'll take, I, I would take one, the first question and okay. then let's open it up. And I forgot to mention, too, that uh, there will be a reception afterwards. Uh, we'll go to about 7, so we have uh, time. We don't have to go that long. We'll probably go about that long and uh, have lots of questions and discussion. There will be a reception afterwards downstairs, um, so, and everyone's invited to that, so I forgot to mention. So I, uh, this question I would start with is... Uh, Thinking about using art as kind of social critique, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's really interesting. And, and a lot, I feel like uh, a lot of the things we try to do in academia or in, in writing is similar, right? Thinking about historical context, thinking about visual overlaps, thinking about uh, what's happening with right neoliberal violence today. Uh, that a lot of these things are similar kinds of projects, and yet. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is what happens when you try to turn it into art? Because I mm-hmm. do think one of the problems with academia is exactly what you point out. It tends to be boring. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> not so much that it's just... sort of beating people over the head. So how, I mean, how do you think about you know, balancing the critique with making it interesting and, and making it well, art? Well, that's why looking at these cultural texts that have been so compelling to so many people is really useful you know there are I, I, did any of you guys watch mad men there's a a a, 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 a one of the 
programs in uh, I think the fifth or the fourth the fifth season when they get to the end of the 60s and Don Draper is taking his kids to see Planet of the Apes I mean it's like the Simpsons have done uh, you know uh, programs about Planet of the Apes there was something about those films and the way in which they embodied anxieties in the culture um, but but also talked about issues in the culture that it doesn't leave us we're fascinated by them so I want to in a way exploit and pre-existing text um, to be able to work with that and I tell you when I put those that whole outfit on like everybody when I, just at the photo shoot everybody just stops dead you know I mean there's a way in which the power of the visual you know to, uh, to create empathy um, and to, is not to be dismissed and I know that in certain contexts that may be seen as not serious but you can use that you know in, in this in in the way that anybody who performs uses uh, what they have to be able to draw people in to be able to tell a story right and to guide people through a set of issues through a fictive in a fictive space um, and so that's that you know and that's the hard part right but but to do it well it's like friends of mine who are novelists who write historical fiction do an enormous amount of research on the time period that they're writing about it may be they have to go to libraries and read every single New York Times cover you know front page from the year that their story is set in because they have to be able to talk about that world as if they had been there right so I have to been you know immersing myself in the world of Ape City because I have to talk as if I had came from there right so what you know read the sacred scrolls and there and my what's lucky for me is that there are so many freaky like there are trekkies well there are also people who are obsessed with planet of the apes so there are all these websites where people have you know done detailed analyses of the sacred scrolls and all. so i can you know work with this right to try to extend it um much in the same way that you know people who were uh doing all sorts of remakes and and cartoon versions and also are also extending the story for their you know for whatever purpose they have the thing about art is i don't know if you can go as deeply what i think that you can into a subject i think what you can do though is to create a structure of feeling that can um that is a very uh that can be a not necessarily a pedagogical experience, but an enlightening experience of a different kind, where you can really get into another kind of um, reality by entering a fictive space. And I think that there are things to be gained from that. I mean, if you you know if you want to try to measure something like that statistically, I mean, there are you know articles that come out in the science section of the Times about how uh, students who study the humanities have. A, a you know greater capacity for empathy because they have to enter into the fictive realities of others. So you know I see the um, kind of the the knowledge component of this being of that order. All right, I have more questions, but let's yeah let's let's open it up. Why don't we start? Hey, can I ask you to introduce yourself too? Yeah, sure. My name is Matt Brand, and um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how these films both embody it as you said, embodying anxiety, but also kind of embody a utopian wish. Mm -hmm. Like the way you were talking about Ape City, like one of the things is on one hand, it has like a rigid social hierarchy, but also there's like no commerce. Right. Like it's a capital-free zone. There's no money. There's no money, right? Yeah. So, so I'm just wondering about that and how you play out that balance, because there's also 
somehow this idea that nature will save us. On one hand, we've destroyed it, but if we, with our, if we technically enhance nature somehow, nature will then save us from ourselves. So I just didn't know if you were. Well, I think you know the 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 intellectuals in those films are very uh, they reprimand humans for their for their excessive violence and their obsession with uh, you know growth the what 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 the apes perceive as the wrong kind of growth right but at the same time it's pretty clear in it seems to me in the films that the society the apes have created is also untenable. Um, because it is so rigid, like to keep people out of the forbidden zone, all, I mean to keep the apes out of the forbidden zone, all it does is it creates scientific curiosity about the forbidden zone. Like everything, every rule they try to impose, there's somebody there to, who wants to subvert the rule, right? Except for, well, the gorillas, even the, the um, admonition against violence, the gorillas are constantly uh, violating that because they're constantly wanting to, you know, engage in warfare um, with, hum- with the, with the, with the survivors with the humans who are who have survived or with anything else that they can and they even start to attack the chimps at a certain point because the chimps are the pacifists right so it's a it, you know it, it's a stressful environment even though there's an attempt to create this kind of trouble-free zone right um, int- I think what another part of it that's really interesting that has to do with a utopia is that and this was p- pointed out to me by um, a primatology grad student at Columbia who was kind enough to allow me to ask her lots of dumb questions as a non-scientist, and she was super open, and I really appreciate it. But she told me that, you know, uh, I I didn't even know that chimps, orangutans, baboons, and gorillas don't even live in the same part of the planet, like, so that there would never be an ape society where they would all be in contact with each other. But in the films, they're all brought together in this kind of multiracial ape society that is, interestingly, not segregated, but stratified by skill. Right, and so everybody's marked by color. So in a way, it has a kind of visualization that is not that different from the racial stratification of human societies. Right, but they're also marked by color and profession. So the chimps are the intellectuals and the scientists. The orangutans are orange and they're in governance. Right, and the ape, the, the gorillas are are kind of mostly black. Right, and they're the warmongers, right? They're the militaristic ones, and you don't, and they don't change. Like you don't get to, there isn't social mobility, kind of horizontal uh, mobility in those societies. So you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I feel that the stress there. Whereas I don't read that in the novel, then because the ape society in the novel is completely, it's on a different planet. It's separate. Right, um, and also, it's not. Uh, it doesn't imagine itself as threatened by um, an external uh, force, or and, and there's no problem of territorial boundaries the way Abe City has. You know, it's it's started by apes who escape from a human society, but they leave it over there, right? And it's the threat of the other over there never leaves. Yeah, Jim. Uh, Jim Parity, uh, compared to media studies, uh, fascinated with your project. Uh, what I'm interested in and very, very curious about is um, what your perform, uh, what the structure of your performance mm-hmm. will be. So, uh, I mean, this this is marvelous analysis, and right. I can see a, a book or articles, right. or all sorts of things coming out of it. But actually, that's not what you're after. You are 
creating a performance that will be done by a number of people or one person? Me, because I'm I'm basically I'm in the character Zira in the films is an animal psychologist who specializes in the study of the human brain. So she has to come when she if I bring her back to life, she's still an animal psychologist and she's going to lecture, right? But she has a she has an illustrated lecture that she travels with. Now this is the beginning of the project, right? But as you can I mean in other performances I've done, I try to have kind of um material components also so that, you know, if I'm invited to be in an art exhibition, I have another part or a publication. So I will write as Zira publish as Zira, right? Uh, I can, uh, she may have, you know, a sketchbook or a notebook because one of the things that I've uh, observed uh, looking at documentaries in which primatologists are talking about their research, when they go in the field, they handwrite their notes very often or you see like Sapolsky on a manual typewriter because there's no electricity so this gives me the potential to create artifacts right that the artworks that are about Zira's observations of human behavior so in addition to the performance will you have uh, outreach like uh, websites or uh... I may I mean it starts with the performance and then it builds from there and you know and this is a, a kind of um, modular way of working that I've used before when I was uh, working on a project on um, mil- use of female interrogators in uh, in uh, the war on terror you know I started with a kind of field work where I went and took a course with interrogators um, and then I documented the field work and that became a film I also did a monologue I also did a street performance where I worked with theater students in Brazil about kind of the choreographies of military policing. I also did the female interrogator book was a book that was, you know, an extension of that project. So it begins with, okay, what's the fictive space I'm creating? What's the subject matter I'm trying to deal with? And then what kinds of manifestations can come from this, right? But right now, step one is to get Zira to the podium, Right, and you know, as part of that, I mean, it's not a straightforward academic lecture because I'm working with a sound artist who I've collaborated with in the past, who's going to um, create a sound bed for the piece, so that I'm talking with sound that is kind of a composition that is close to what the Planet of the Apes films music is like, because I don't know if you guys listen to it. Some of the later films, I don't like the music as much, but the early ones do a very good job of creating a sense of strangeness in the environment, and then I'm removing the seating from the regular uh, auditorium and putting in benches, very kind of crude wooden benches, so that I'm creating a kind of installation-like atmosphere for the performance, because if you Recall in the films when the apes get together, they have their congresses where they talk about their issues. They're on benches, right? They're on these very rustic benches. So I'm trying to bring a little bit of the visuals of the film into the real space to kind of um, create a mood, create a kind of theatrical mood. And then from there, you know, I, I mean, when I saw like that the manual typewriter in the field, I was like, this is just, you know, there's such so much potential for visuals that could come out of that. Um, But right now I have to pick my scenarios um, for Zira to observe. Because the thing is, the way that um, primatologists write, and the way they do their work is so different from um, any kind of more academic research I've ever done, because basically they sit and watch and then describe what they see, right? And so I have to teach myself how to do this as Zira. 
to be convincing. Um, and a lot of you know what would be dramatically compelling is to find the right scene, um, you know, of human behavior to be observing. Right. Do you have a date for when this? Oh yeah, it's uh, mid December. Mid December. Yeah. Where, where is it again? Uh, the Studio Museum in Harlem. Studio Museum in Harlem. Yeah. Mid December. Yeah. yeah. Right, more questions. Uh, let's uh, let's go to Heather first, and then we'll go back. Hi, to I'm Heather. Hi. When I first saw the picture of you with Zira, I thought, oh, she's doing Cornelius. Um, because it actually looked a little bit more like him, and you made some changes, like the dark makeup under the eyes looked a little bit different. And, and in the films, Zira is, is often kind of femmed up. Uh -huh. um, so she's this powerful woman, but then sometimes they make jokes about her femininity, or they put her in fancy outfits, and that kind of thing. Well, she, she only changes her clothes when she comes back to human earth, and they take her shopping, and they also take Cornelius shopping. So you see a couple of those. But then they go back to their green, yeah. I, you know, part of the thing was that the, uh, well, there is a company in Hollywood called Ape Mania. They have, it's, and it's Hollywood makeup artists who are specialists in special effects makeup. They have the license to reproduce the prosthetics that were used in the film. But there, whereas the prosthetics for the main actors in the original Apes films were made to their specifics, these are generic prosthetics, right? But so you can get a female chimp prosthetic or a male chimp prosthetic. Um, in terms of the, I, Kim Hunter had green eyes, I have brown eyes, so it looks, it does look different, the prosthetic looks different on me, but the wig has to be you're right that the wig has to be styled because they sent us the female wig, but it has to be, it still has to be, what, what, the, what makes Zira look so femme is that it's done curled under like a bob, so we have to do, you have to, uh, you know, style it. The other thing is that um, the prosthetic set and the wig set comes with individually woven hairs on netting that have to be applied because the wig only comes to the human hairline but the actual hair for that comes all the way into the face and on me it does look more masculine than it did on her but it actually is what she had like she had beard all under here I mean, I, I'm interested in the technical details, but what I was getting at in part was just if you could talk about some of the gender dynamics of the films and what role that might play in the performance that you're... Well, you know, on the one hand, Zira is the only talking ape female, right? And I think, you know, she exists in the book as a very, as, as one of the most, you know, individuated ape characters. So I think that that's why she's there, but also because... I think that the, the, the book needs a female character to, in a sense, fall in love with Taylor or fall in love in the book with Ulysses. They need that kind of emotional bond to explain why, why Zero and Cornelius break so many rules. Because in the book and in the film, their Cornel the Cornelius character is more reluctant to um, cross racial lines and become friends with the human, right? So, you know, and, and it's the, his wife convinces him. So, you know, there is a bit of, it is kind of, um, how to put it, uh, I don't want to say it's completely deterministic because she's an intellectual and, you know, she has, she, but, but there is, a, but she is represented and the other female uh, ape characters like her ancestors, which you see in the last film, um, The Battle for the Planet of the Apes, 
uh, are the, the very traditional female role, like the mother who's concerned about the kid all the time and worried about the husband and like, oh, honey, please come home from the, the forbidden zone kind of uh, attitude that does come out. But I'm not really that concerned with that part of it. I'm more concerned with the professional's era. What can she do? Because if you remember, in... Is it Escape from the Planet of the Apes? She is given truth serum, and she begins to talk about the brain surgeries that she presided over, right? And all the experiments that she did on humans. So that's when you see the science, the scientist part of her does come out in film three, and yet what she knows about humans. And that was the part I was like, well, I, this is what I can use, you know? Although it is a climactic moment in that film, she's pregnant, right? Is that a big yeah. Well, I mean, and, and also for Jane Goodall, I mean, you know, every like, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think that, I mean, I don't, I don't think that that undercuts her, the seriousness of her endeavor, you know, as 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 a quote unquote scientist within the within the fiction. Desi, first. Hi, I'm Desi Goodall. Hi. And I'm going back to so here. Mm-hmm. About artists and critique. I actually really loved your response because I've never heard anyone respond about you know, like the purpose of artist social critique, or maybe not the purpose, but one of the aims so distinctly um, with that that art might not be able to go as deeply as like academia, which has this logical argument, but um, that it creates a structure of feeling. But um, it, it brings me to another question, which is sort of like, what is as an artist what, who's working with socially engaged, you are a socially engaged artist, you are making some sort of social critique, you obviously feel a certain way about something. What's your responsibility to sort of to your audience to make sure that they get it almost? Um, that art uh-huh. is so difficult to get, that you have done so much research and you clearly explain that super well to us, um, and it's really interesting, but someone watching your performance might not get it. And how, how does that come across? Well, this is a question that comes up a lot. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, I don't know if I always get it because I'm known for this piece where I was in a cage, you know, uh, the undiscovered Amerindian and the whole kind of fascination with the work came from people thinking that there were other people who didn't get it and how could they not understand that we weren't real savages and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, there's there's a simple way to answer this question and there's a more complicated way. The simple way, I think the simple way to answer the question is that I don't think that artists can control whether or not their audiences get it. I think that but also I don't think anybody can control whether or not the interlocutor at the you know on the other side gets what you're saying. I mean, you hope so, right? But it doesn't necessarily happen. And it certainly doesn't necessarily happen instantaneously. I mean, I think that that is something that getting older has been one of the greatest lessons was just wait. Because people might not understand what you're saying right now, but they may understand in 10 years or 20 years or more. And I think that, you know, you know, you sit in college reading all kinds of books that, you know, people didn't understand when they were written and they understand them better now or they understand them in a different way. I mean, or think about artworks, the meaning of which change because of historical context. I mean, when you take a copy of Guernica and you put it in the UN and they're talking about weapons of mass destruction, suddenly the painting means something different, right? I mean, that's a sort of vulgar example, but it's a common, it's one that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, so, you know, I try to, I, I try not to worry so much about getting it because I think that what that 
does to artists is it, it makes them simplify what they're doing too much. Um, and I don't even know if I get it, really, because ultimately it's like, how did I get to this? You know, it's like if somebody told me last year that I was going to be Dr. Zira, I would have thought, what? You know, what are you talking about, right? And I, I mean, it was just like it came up in a, com- I was having a conversation with a curator and thinking about this show that this is going to be part of that's called Radical Presence and thinking about what I felt was sort of the general complacency of some of the work and wanting to be a radical presence within that context of a, ra- a show about radical presence. And I'm like, what could I do? What would be like the most far out thing that I could do in a black museum is to come in as a talking ape, right? So, like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And then from there, I'm like, then I have to try to figure out, okay, so how am I going to make sense of this? How am I going to make this work? What's going to happen? And then once I'm inside that, then I can start thinking about all these possibilities, right? But I'm not even sure if I really get why I'm doing it or I don't know what people are going to think. But I think I don't worry about that. Because I think the, the if you worry about that too much, it's like worrying about it's like being in advertising, right? And I'm not in advertising. Like I'm not trying to sell a hamburger, so why worry? You know. Um, and, and the thing is, if if an art audience feels like all they all they have to do is get it, they're going to leave in like a minute. Because that's not a very interesting aesthetic experience. I think the more interesting aesthetic experiences are the ones that where people are confused for a while, where they are perturbed, where they come back to it, um, you know, where the, uh, like a, a day later or a month later or a year later. And you know, it's nice when you get like messages from people years afterward, you know, I, I remember when you did this thing and I'm still thinking about that. I'm like, well, good. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's exactly what you want. I got you five, so let's go over here first. Please. Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Cooper. I'm a sophomore at Tufts. Um, so, it seems like um, this sort of critique, you're using kind of the apes as a lens, but then you're also using Zira as a lens uh, to specifically address <laughs> social critique. So, so, how did you choose this man- manifestation um, of, of Zira? Was it, is it just because she was a woman and an intellectual in the movie? Were you willing and an ape? And an ape. And were you willing? Would you have been willing to create a character that was still that, um, if it had a better purpose and maybe complemented your message better? Well, the thing is, I don't think that the message comes before the character. The character allows me to create a message, right? But I have to use her language, and in order to do that, I have to understand how somebody like her would talk, right? Um, And not just about how to save Taylor from the gorillas, but how would she talk about, how, how would she extend the reprimand that she and Cornelius make in those films of, you know, the destructiveness of humans, or the uh, you know the the, the the peculiarities to them of of human behavior, right? So that's why immersing myself in that fiction, then I can try to figure out, extrapolate from there how you know how if if she continued the conversation, what else would she say, right? Um, so it's not like I have I have something I want to say and then I find the character. It's like no, I have this I have this character. And I want to, in a way, kind of expand her, almost thinking about it, you know, character in a, pl- in a plastic sense of how can I stretch that character, right? What can I do with that character? I have some things that come. There's a ready-made component, right, which is 
the zero of the film, but now I want her to do something else. So what can I what can I make her her do? Could I push that a little farther? Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like one of the themes that comes up, the undiscovered Amerindian, the female interrogator, the, the Dr. Zero, that could just talk a little bit more about the advantages of having a character first, maybe? And, mm-hmm. and why, I mean, is, is that something you gravitate toward? I know you do a lot of different things. Well, I mean, it's a framing device, right? right? It's, a, it's a way to, you know, it's, it's just like, in, in a way, it's almost like, you know, being a draftsman and putting a, make, starting the line. It's a, it's a framing device. It's a, it gives you a, a language to work within, right? So it's a kind of structuring element. Um, it's a way to, um, to kind of create a storyline, right? Because you have a point of view. Uh, so these are all kind of useful, right? They're, but they're not only useful in a substantive sense in that, you know, it, like the story emerges from the character, right? But it's also useful in a tactical sense because the character allows me to see things, right? Um, and to, to shine a light on something that I wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to shine a light on in the same way and to create a certain amount of discomfort about that that point of view. I mean, in the case of the female interrogator, she was proud of, of sexually harassing people in the service of her, you know, of her country, right? But I really, you know, when I started reading about that the Pentagon admitted that they were training women to use their sexuality in interrogations and that that was a tactic that had been approved, I was like, how would you get your, how would you put yourself into the frame of mind in which you could um, engage in this activity in, and feel positive about it, right? Because you can't, I mean, there's only so much that you can lie or there's only so much you can dissimulate as an interrogator. I mean, you can, you, and this is something that I learned from the guys who I studied with, you know, you can work with accents, you can, cre- you can be a certain character type when you're in the room, but you can't, you, one thing that they have to feel very sincere about is their purpose, because otherwise the whole structure crum- crumbles. So I was like, okay, so then what are the ethics of the character, right? Fox, you're up. All right, thanks. Mm-hmm. No, I'm Fox Trolla. I'm on the faculty here in Comparative Media Studies at the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. And so I wanted to engage you in dialogue about one of the earlier parts of your talk. Which can you was, face a little this way, too, so everybody can yeah. hear it, too? Yeah. Okay. So we can uh, hear you. One of the earlier parts of your talk, which it was, well, it's hard to talk. <laughs> to That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. I can hear you so, if you go that way. It might be easy for you, right? right. So, uh, yeah, but, but it's about, the, about Afrofuturism. And... Uh, and so uh, I really love a lot of the works that have come under the rubric of Afrofuturism, maybe mm-hmm. from Parliament Funkadelic up through Octavia Butler and, and so forth. But at the same time, personally, sometimes the concept has caused uh, consternation. And, and here's the reason why, which mm-hmm. is that uh, uh, well, first, there, there's a lot of technical innovation that comes from diverse communities, of course. And so people like Craig Watkins talking about use of technologies, mobile phone technologies, and hacking technologies, and, and so forth, that is a, a sort of a legitimate, le- legitimate technical innovation uh, there. My, my own work looks at, say, artificial intelligence, how you can ground it in diverse cultures, say, models of oral tradition mm-hmm. that, that come from that culture, from other cultures. And the reason I mentioned the consternation isn't about the concept itself, but it's because sometimes people say, well, isn't all of that Afrofuturism? And it's quite, uh, and maybe they're just not savvy about the concept. That, do you think that's too reductive? Uh, well, no, the issue is that uh, a lot of times Afrofuturism is about using science and technology as 
an empowering metaphor, so a kind of vision of the future. But at the same time, there are, the science that's used as a metaphor can also be innovated by those communities. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes when work that does the latter, that's looking at the science and technology and innovations and hacking that comes to these communities, is conflated with metaphor, it looks almost as if the science can't be produced by those communities. And so I just wonder if that tension ever comes up for you, where you might say, uh, are there places where the innovation in the science is coming from uh, subaltern communities, or coming from communities that you're inspired uh, by culturally, and uh, not, as, not as a metaphor, but let's bring about this technical uh, innovation. And if that tension ever comes up for you in, in, in your work too, because you know, it, the, the issue is just if, whether it's uh, kids that are innovating with sampler technology and hacking that technology, or AI systems that I'm working on, mm -hmm. people say that's just a metaphor for something cultural. I say, no, actually, science and technology can be grounded in these cultures. I think, I, I think the thing is, I think they're, when the, the kind of conversation about Afrofuturism went, got exploded in the 90s, I think that the conversation about digital technology and minorities was very focused on the digital divide. Perhaps that's uh, the moment that is most connected to the, the situation you're talking about. But I think that, that, we've, that things have changed a lot in the last 20 years, um, and that, that the focus of the conversation isn't so much on the digital divide anymore. Um, and so that I don't know if the, that, and I don't know if there's a tendency to treat everything as metaphor either, particularly in the Afrofuturist writings on music, where, I, you know, people like Kojo Eshin or even, um, the jazz musician who's at Columbia, who's works with, who plays on computers, yes, you know, who uh, uh, does you know, brilliant. I mean, he has like a brilliant understanding of the history of the kind of interplay between experimental music, jazz, and uh, and digital technologies. So I think that there, you know, the, there are people who who are within this kind of world of very unformed uh, uh, world of Afrofuturist discourse who have focused on technological innovation within, particularly within musical forms, right? I mean, Kojo's whole argument about Drexia and Detroit techno or about, um, you know, uh, uh, Sun Ra's work in, uh, or any other kind of... Uh, what what he labels kind of Afrofuturist uh, or Afrofuturist musicians was about the ways even um, Lee, Lee Scratch Perry that it was about their ways of um, working with musical technology to reinvent uh, black musical forms right and they and he his original argument in More Brilliant Than the Sun was about how this was a kind of undercurrent that wasn't recognized that the dominant cultural understanding of black music was all about live music, about the voice, about orality. It was all about locating it in the body, whereas there were all these other musicians he labeled futurists who were actually um, trying to innovate uh, using technologies, uh, recording technologies. So I do think that there are some people who are focused on actual work, and I'm not the person in cultural studies who works on kind of um, how people use cell phones and um, or, or hacking, but there are people who are out there who do, who do, who do do that work now. So I think that there's a kind of evolving understanding. What I think is true to what you're saying is that I think that some of the scenarios in uh, science fiction scenarios that are about race relations do position 
the subaltern as an, a, a kind of victim of technology, that that is a dominant mode of representing the relationship to technology. And some of that has to do with a history of technological subjection, but some of it has to do with, I think, the, a generational gap between who are the writers, right? I mean, like Butler, Delaney, or people who are older than me, looking at, a, you know, coming out of a different time period um, and talking and trying to imagine a future based on what they lived. I think that now, uh, you know, younger people who have a different experience of engagement would probably describe the scenario in a different way. Right, and just just to follow up very briefly, it's just, mm-hmm. I think the issue is that when I see someone like George Lewis talk, there's perennially these kind of questions that come up that aren't you just using the the nutshell version is aren't you just using the tool of the oppressor to construct this kind of this, this kind of work, which is you know, the simplified version of kind of what what you said. And I think the issue is just that by looking at his work in the same lens as the kind of work as metaphor, sometimes it abets those kind that kind of viewpoint and obscures. Well, that you know. It's funny. I'm, it surprises me that you would encounter this so much because that is, I mean, I remember those kinds of arguments from the 80s about, you know, any anybody who didn't want to make a documentary film in filmmaking who was African-American was a traitor to the cause of positive images. But that, I mean, that seems, that argument seems so antiquated at this point. And my experience of, you know, I've taught uh, Afrofuturism courses a couple of times in the last four years, and both times I had like public programs attached to it and the room was full of people who were like all DJs who considered themselves Afrofuturists and were extremely technological adept and nobody was in there saying that it was kind of against the rules to be you know, very deeply uh, engaged with technology. So I think we're, you know, I wouldn't say that the sentiment that you're um, uh, representing has disappeared altogether, but I, I, I have a hard time seeing it as the dominant one. Okay. What? Your question now? Okay. Uh, all right, you can have a follow-up. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, is dressing up like zero, this might sound weird, but is it a kind of like a super minstrelsy, like a super blackface? It might be in a way. I mean, so was getting in a cage and wearing, you know, a grass skirt. Uh, uh, but, you know, these are, there are ways in which you can, these, these are somewhat familiar tropes that I twist, right? Um, and, you know, that, I mean, that's not an uncharted territory in art making, whether it's, you know, painting or photography. If you take the familiar and you try to make it unfamiliar, you have, a big, you have somewhere to start where you know people think they understand what you're doing and then you're actually doing something else right the questions here please uh, hi i'm nick Hathaway. i'm hi. from freshman at tufts and i was wondering um, you talked a little bit about how the planet of the apes um its story and its related themes were kind of adapted um and changed when it was presented to an american audience mm-hmm. and i was wondering how you think or how you expect that your work will alter those themes for a more relevant or contemporary american audience well the kinds of um, the critique of human civilization in those films focused on the social issues of that time period: the Vietnam War, the you know uh, kind of nuclear, the threat of nuclear warfare, right? And that's why the mutant humans are worship a bomb, right? And uh, and race relations, right? And the and also the human, the the human, the supposedly uniquely human 
capacity to kill one another, right? Uh, we're not in that. Those are not the dominant. Well, first of all, the science isn't there anymore because now we know that the, you know chimps also are genocidal. So um, and 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 also commit infanticide and do all these things that those lovely chimps are. We would never have imagined when I was a kid that they would be possible, but now it's known. So humans are not the only primates who kill. So that's not part of the critique anymore. But there are distinctly human forms of aggression that can be the focus of Dr. Zira's critique, right, that have to do with this, the kind of economic violence that I was describing, the monetarization of social relations that should be altruistic, like trying to deal with young people and their issues by selling them to prisons. Um, and it's almost like Swiftian. Reality looks Swiftian to me, right? So I'm bringing a Swiftian character to that reality to talk about it, right? Um, and, you know, the, the capacity to, you know, this kind of technology and warfare, I wouldn't focus it so much on the weapons of mass destruction argument, which was the Planet of the Apes argument. I would focus it more on this kind of very surgical, you know, the drone strike, which is really the, 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 the question of excess and militarism of the moment is that. That's why Malala went to Obama's office and was like, drone strikes, man, thanks for the invitation, but drone strikes in Pakistan, you know, this is a big problem for my country, you know. Uh, I mean, she's 16-year-old. It is, it's so, you know, Zira has to talk about drone strikes, right? She's got to talk about drone strikes. She's got to talk about economic violence. She's got to talk about, you know, that that's the kind of thing that she has to talk about if she's going to do what those characters did in the 60s. Yeah. My name is Charlie Smith, and uh, my question is: Do you think Zero will, will mention the recent ad in South Korea, the chimp representing the all of Africa? Have you seen that? No, I saw a New York Post cover that had to do with like the I think it was some something in Congress, and then like representing Obama as an ape. That was the the last thing that I googled the other day, and I was like, I don't know where to put this in a lecture, but this is you know I'll have to use it somewhere. <laughs> I mean, it might, the thing is, I don't know if Sears should spend all her time talking about the the kind of the way that the far right represents uh, Obama as a chimp. I think you know, I put it in because I'm trying to contextualize a cultural anxiety, right? But I don't know whether that's really the focus because she studies humans, right? She's not there to defend chimps against humans. She's there to talk about her research on human behavior, right? She is. She has had. 20 years since the last time she was in a movie, she's spent those 20 years observing human folly, particularly the powerful and what they do, right? And, uh, you know, she hasn't been able to get back into the, 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 the um, operating room to do brain surgery, but she could sit around and watch what politicians do or what uh, Wall Street bankers do and talk about it, you know, in, in ways that we may not be used to thinking about. Can I follow up on that? And mm-hmm. I'll get that. There's more questions too, but I'm curious to hear a little more about the economic violence part of it. And I absolutely agree. And I, I use that uh, Mother Jones slide myself about the sort of the misunderstanding of how much inequality there is, and mm-hmm. that you know people are making judgments about what the economy should be based on a completely false image of what what's going on. Inequality actually is right. What's going right. on? 
Now, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and so it's the big thing in anthropology right now to find all sorts of ways to critique neoliberalism and mm -hmm. to show how it's taking over our emotional life, it's become part of our, our family life, that everything is becoming increasingly monetized as the new ethic of efficiency and technocratic uh, uh, utopia. Uh, but one of my concerns is that in doing so, I think this kind of critique can reinforce the idea that capitalism is the only game in town. And that, in fact, we are only underneath this one neoliberal model uh, when I think another way to look at it is, in fact, most of our lives is not, are not guided uh, by uh, capitalism. I think a lot of the devastation that's happening could be related to this inequality. But that might there be a more positive spin to say, look, we're misinterpreting what's controlling our lives, in fact, and that we're giving the Wall Street bankers almost too much credit. And so I'm wondering how you, I mean, so that's one of the ways I've mm -hmm. been thinking about it, but I'm wondering how you think about how to get under people's skin when it comes to this economic well, violence. Well, you know, I mean, I'm all for Occupy Wall Street. I had a lot of students who were involved with it. I went down there and supported them. But in a way, I think that the critique was useful and it enforced, uh, you know, politicians to talk about economic inequality, but that it also, you know, stopped at the bad guys are over there, right? And I'm, I'm more interested in the way in which these uh, economic systems have, in a way, generated what scientists called adaptive behaviors in all of us. Um, and, you know, I, I think I understand what you're talking about, about not wanting to, you know, give it all to the Wall Street bankers, but I think that there is some... I don't think that I would be disagreeing with you to say that I think that there are some ways in which, you know, we are lying to ourselves if we don't understand how capitalism has entered into the most intimate yeah. regions of our lives. And that, you know, things like, you know, just as a, you know, a mom, just talk about, you know, the relationship between caring, ch child care and money and the quality of childcare, you know, what, how, you know, early childhood development is so dependent on the quality of care, and the quality of care is so dependent on the amount of money you can pay, right? And so this puts, at a dis puts people without money at a disadvantage from the get-go, and by the time you get kids in public school at five, the, the, the game's over. Right. And, and, and the thing is that that if just and I'm not trying to romanticize, you know, a world of housewives either. That's not it. But there are other ways to organize the work of care. Right. And, you know, when a, when billionaires can try to convince college students that it's too much of a burden to care for the elderly, you know, then they're pitting one sector of the population that needs care against another sector of the population that needs care. You know, like forcing trying to force a kind of ideological war on a society where it's clear we don't have enough structures of care for anyone here, right, especially for the sectors of the population that require it, which at this point is about 50% of the people who are alive, right? You're either too young to work or you're too old or you're too sick. That's 50%. That's the people Mitt Romney didn't like, right? <laughs> so, you know, you want to throw them all out, right? I mean, to, to sort of create a, a kind of a, 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 um, imaginary obsolescence of the middle-aged worker. I mean, you know, this is the society we're in. I, I, I understand that, you know, maybe it's trendy in anthropology, but I, when I look at it, you know, just from a, a pure kind of like 
ethical standpoint, and I think this is a frightening world, and yet I don't hear too many responses to the frighteningness of what the, what's implied by that. Yeah, you know? just like the billionaires spending to, so we don't expand Medicare. Yeah, right? you know, yeah, exactly. All right, so there's four questions. All right, that Tom first, and then we'll, we can move up here, too. And you too. This is a question that's off the, the, the line you've just been talking about, but I've been getting more curious because I was sort of trying to think, you know, who does Professor Zero really remind me of more and more? And I'm remembering that, you know, in the 60s, when you're talking about the, the first investigations of Arab societies, it was Louis Leakey's girls, as yes. he referred to them. And, uh, you know, I met him three months before he died and he talked with great enthusiasm about, you know, how he's going to send out more. He died three months later and so forth. Um, and I'm wondering how much of your character is is you know Jane Goodall and the rest, or how much you're, you're drawing on that to inform how you come out of the world? Well, I mean, I you know I've watched. Gorillas in the Mist many times. I've looked at Jane Goodall at lecture many times. I mean, I'm trying to learn how these people talk, right? Um, and what I, from what I can tell, and, and also there are quite a few women involved with the um, kind of care of Coco the gorilla, and uh, Nim Chimsky's entire kind of education was, you know, from breastfeeding, being breastfed by a human female all the way through all his uh, language study was all done with women. It wasn't until he got to Oklahoma where he was already a kind of reject that he had a guy handler, right, who ends up being the one who saves him from the lab from becoming just another chimp who dies early from, you know, from doing drug testing. But it, it seems to me as an outsider to this that the field of primatology is like divided between alpha males and very kind of traditionally caring women because the, the guy who runs the primate lab at Columbia is one of these like alpha males that nobody likes, right? Um, and Sapolsky def, def, uh, describes himself as an alpha male. So these are not the like guys who cuddle their primates, right? <laughs> but then you look at the visuals for all the women involved and they've constantly, you know, it's like the, the primates are their children and they have that very kind of strong, affective uh, bond with them. So, you know, is there a little bit of that in my character? Maybe. Um, uh, Marlene McCarty, who's a wonderful visual artist, did uh, a study, a, 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 a study of, of these women and their, their um, strangely sexual relationships with primates many um, in the in the 90s and they're very they're very scary drawings because you see all these kind of women scientists like breastfeeding uh, you know pri uh, monkeys and you know in bed with the monkeys and this and that but in a way that is kind of the, the relationship that they develop with them and a different kind of knowledge about those animals was produced as a result of that more affective uh, connection. What else do we have? Yeah, here, right here. Hi, my name is Daria Alcon. I'm a previous history of Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering... A little louder? You might have to do a little louder. In your performance um, as Dr. Vera, if you think she'll have anything sort of positive or hopeful to say about the past 20 years, and um, and if that would be important to your audience to have something positive to point to, or if that's not really the point. And then my other just minor question was whether or not you have pets at home.
Yes, my son has two lizards and we have two cats. So, um, so yes, we do. We have animal. And if you know, if he got his way, there would be a lot more animals at home. But it, it makes it very difficult to travel when you have so many pets to care for. So, um, but you know, I think. The thing that I, I think is, I, I, I agree with you that there are attempts to create spaces where capital is not the determining factor. Um, I think that, that they're minor, you know, they're minoritarian, but I think it is interesting, for example, that in um, kind of experimental, the experimental end of visual art in the last five, six years, the trend has been, you know, these collectives of artists who are interested in bartering and small-scale farming and I, I think that young there are, there is a sector of the younger adult population that is kind of wanting to drop out a little bit almost the way that hippies wanted to be off-grid and get get away from that the kind of rigidity of um, the company man lifestyle in the in the late 60s and early 70s the thing is that in the the new york version of this is immediately recuperated and brought back into capital so now brooklyn is the home of slow food and you know rooftop farming but there's a Whole Foods about to open in Brooklyn with a rooftop fun farm managed by these uh, kind of hippie types, right? Hip, hippie capitalists. So I don't know. You know, maybe she'll have something nice to say about um, you know people who are interested in conservation or in um, in uh, cleaning up the Hudson River. And you know things like that. You know, well, it's a big deal. <laughs> you know, I lived there my whole life, and it used to stink. And at least now it doesn't smell bad anymore. Um, so you know, she may have uh, you know something to say about these uh, the continued development of move of movements to restore and to connect. Um, you know, instead of to kind of individuate and to exploit, right? Which is the, the sort of the, the alpha male tendency. I think we had a question over here. Yeah. Right. Um, Andrea Morales. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a Rica. I'm a storyteller and I'm a transmedia creator. I loved how you mentioned that Syria hasn't had been able to well, basically have a voice as a character for 20 years and that right now she might have some interesting things to say. Um, that kind of implies that Sira has continued to exist and, and perhaps even evolved herself a, as a character and, and her story mm-hmm. after the movies. Or, Well, I don't know at which point you're situating her in the narrative, so that would be my first question. And my second question would be, um, since you're planning or, or could extend her character into uh, like journals or other forms of expression, at which point do you believe her plot will end? Mm-hmm. You know, is she going to evolve by meeting humans and talking to them now? Um, is, is this going to in a way be an extension of her own story too? Well. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm working on it, so I have not at the end yet. So I don't have, I don't have an answer to all your questions, but let's just go back for a moment to the temporality of the original. Okay, because, you know, the pl- first Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston and his astronaut buddies go, how many, like, I don't know how many thousand years into the future, right? So they, when they arrive in Ape City, it's been a while, Right? They left Earth 
in like 1970 or something like that, and they go way into the future, okay? When Zero returns to Earth, she comes back 20 years after Taylor left. So that's why I'm saying it's like the early 90s when she comes back to Earth dominated by humans. Now, in uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, she's supposedly killed, right? So I have to change the story in a way, say that it wasn't just the chimp that was switched out. It was also her, right? So to say that, okay, so the, her, she and her son were both taken by this circus guy and hidden for a while, which would then allow her to be alive some 20 years later. Now, will she, you know, how much longer would she survive? I don't know. I mean, you know, you know, how long do chimps live? I mean, I think the average lifespan of a chimp is like 40 or 50 years. It's not as long as a human lifespan. So, I mean, technically speaking, biologically, she wouldn't go on for very much longer Right, unless you know somebody decides to do some sort of genetic experiment on her and inject some the two percent of genes that are make her different from a human being and see if it will extend her life. I mean, I don't know, you know, or maybe she did it to herself. I don't know. So I don't have an answer for you as to how much longer she'll exist, but you know, she can pop out now and have something to say. And I think one of the reasons that she feels that she's able to say something is because of that Cambridge declaration that said that, you know, animals have consciousness. So now, like, the, the concern in when she came back to Earth was that the humans didn't want to acknowledge that she, that she could have consciousness. Well, if now humans have decided that it's okay for animals to have consciousness, then she can come out again. Time for a couple, three more questions. Let's go here. Let's go. Fight their wars in that they'll pick off a lone chimp, and a group of six or seven will will kill that one. They don't really ever fight in a situation where they're ever putting themselves in danger. And something like a drone strike or IEDs and ambushes and stuff like that, which are these new forms of human warfare, are very much the same as how chimps have always kind of fought their wars. In that they don't put themselves at danger. Yeah. Well, see now you just gave her a line. Thank you. So yeah, I was just wondering like, if, if she might be able to make that connection that human behavior is becoming more and more chimp-like as it goes on. Well, I mean, perhaps, but at the same time, I think that it's this, the, the, when I've read about, you know, these assessments of what's distinctive about human aggression, that it's the scale and the symbolic level that, you know, that, that, you know, that other primate violence, even if it is genocidal, is very direct. Right, and it's about um, you know perceived danger to the resources necessary for individual or group or survival. Right, whereas I mean we can't. I mean it, we're so far beyond that now because we're at a point where we're manipulating the story about the threat. 
right? And that's the symbolic level that you know that you can sit down, uh, you can sit like millions of people down in front of their television sets or their computer screens and have authorities convince them that there is a threat to the resources necessary for their survival that you believe that we believe and therefore you know authorize the um, the performance of this kind of massive violence against others, right? Which is like the story, the weapons of mass destruction story. I don't know if we that, that to me makes it quantitatively and qualitatively different than um, you know ganging up on 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 an individual. Although maybe you could talk about sort of you know pulling together NATO forces as ga- ganging up on a on a on a kind of much less a much weaker uh, entity. Please, yeah. Yeah, I'm Abby. I'm one of the science writing students here. Um, I am curious. And I'm curious more about the content of Zira's research that she's presenting, and if, like, how much of it would be sourced from the sorts of things that you showed us in the news stories um, today, or how much of it would be your own resource research, or if there are other. Um, places you're planning to source? You know, I mean, how do I find out about all these, like, bizarre, horrific things that happen in the world? I'm just like everybody else. I read the news, you know? So I think that, I mean, I don't... The thing is, where would you go, right? Like, which... How would I get into, like, the Oval Office, right, to observe human behavior. It's unlikely that Azira or me or Azira could get into a space like that or, or you know, the boardroom on Wall Street or the floor of the stock exchange. But she can view scenes from those spaces because the news media is full of them, right, which is also how we observe. C-SPAN is great, a great source, um, you know, it's a great source for The Daily Show, right? But it's also a great source for anybody who's trying to observe those kinds of dynamics because, it's, in a way, it's like you put Congress in a room and it's like having, uh, you know, gorillas in a cage. There they are, going at it. And since they, you know, they're, they're um, what is it, what is it, the way that uh, Sapolsky talks about it is they only have to expend a certain, a very minimal amount of their energy on uh, uh, caloric sustenance, right? So that, you know, they spend very little time worrying about food. Like, congressmen spend very little time worrying about getting food so they can spend all their time driving each other crazy. Which, if you ask me, is what happened with, you know, shutting the government down, Right. Um, and, but in general, that's kind of what distinguishes us from many other animal groups, is that we spend very little time worrying about getting food, and so we spend a lot of time driving each other crazy. One last question. Okay, so we'll have this be the last question, and I propose that we continue the conversation downstairs on the third floor at the reception, but please. How does Zero distinguish between anthropology and primate studies? Well, the thing is, is that she's not doing primate studies or anthropology. She's just looking at humans and what they do. And sometimes there is crossover in those fields. They certainly, people from those two fields, talk to each other. Um, But, you know, I don't, the thing is, is that, remember, I'm making a fiction. One of the things that I get to do, this is one of the um, licenses, is that I can blur those lines, right? I can call her an animal psychologist, and she can say anything about anything, right? But if I um, 
enclose that in a language that sounds somewhat scientific, much in the way that um, in the era of ethnographic displays in the 19th century, you know, a lot of the guys who were dragging people around from Africa and Asia and native people from the Americas, they would use a little bit of kind of scientific language and then a lot of circus barker language. And it was great for the audience, right? And because the, the science was just kind of a veneer. It wasn't, nobody was really learning anything uh, substantive about the cultures of the peoples on display, but the kind of the, the the framing of it in those terms gave the audience the impression that they were receiving um, real information. Fascinating. Well, we're going to have to have uh, Dr. Zero back. Yeah. She comes with an entourage because I can't put that stuff uh, on myself. Yeah. 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 Yeah.